Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So like many people, you probably saw the images of the statue of Robert E. Lee being melted down. Of course, this was the statue that was famously at the center of the Charlottesville controversy a number of years ago. Of course, there was this movement, the idea that we would get rid of all of these confederate statues and the argument being made by many even unfortunately a lot of very stupid conservatives who are saying oh well you know we just move these things to uh you know uh some kind of museum or something uh, you know it'll be honoring uh, you know traitors or that kind of thing and that's where it'll stop you know once we get rid of all these confederate monuments that's where the where it will stop of course we have we know a few years later that was never where it was going to stop that should have been obvious to everybody but there was this melting down of this statue and it felt kind of this like this ritual destruction. And I think that it's really important to take a minute and talk about what that destruction of the past means. Joining me today to talk about that is the contributing editor over at IM 1776, Lafayette Lee. Thanks for joining me, man. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. I know as a veteran and a man of the South, you have very many important things to say about this. But before we get into that, guys, let's go ahead and hear from today's sponsor. These days, it's impossible to thrive with just one job. Between increasing living costs, paying off debts, and planning for the future, things like buying a home, building savings, and even going on vacation can seem like fantasies. If your goal is financial freedom, you could start taking on more hours at your current job, work towards a promotion, or try putting your money into something risky like stocks, cryptocurrencies, or even a side hustle. But at the end of the day, do you really want to sacrifice time and energy that could otherwise be spent with your loved ones or on your hobbies just to make a living? Luckily, you don't have to hustle to reliably make more money. All you have to do is job stacking. Job stacking is the best way for regular people, regular employees, to unleash their earning potential and increase job and financial security. How? By working multiple jobs, but without burning out, or more importantly, getting caught by corporate overlords. Job stacking allows you to reliably receive paychecks from multiple employers each month without having to work more than eight hours a day. You don't have to be in tech or any particular field or industry to do it as long as you can work remotely. If you've thought about working multiple jobs, but you're not sure how to start or are afraid of getting caught, get the fundamental job stacking course today and learn all of the secrets on how to sustainably work multiple full-time jobs from the foremost expert on the matter, Rolf Halza, author of Job Stacking. Rolf has worked multiple full-time jobs since 2018, including hybrid jobs, and has condensed all of his experiences and wisdom into a single four-module online course so you can start proficiently job stacking without having to make mistakes, figuring things out on your own, or reinventing the wheel in the process. Go to www.jobstacking.com and enter the promo code ORIN to get a special discount. All right, so Lafayette, I think back to this time when the Statues Must Fall movement was happening, right? Where you had all of these Confederate statues that suddenly needed to be torn down. Anybody who had had any connection to slavery, anybody who had had any connection to the South, anybody who had any connection to the Confederacy, all of a sudden it became really important. I, I think that this is when a lot of kind of that campus wokeness movement finally started moving into the real world it became really important for people to show up protest physically pull these statues down we saw a lot of that of course the biggest one i think was this moment around the statue of robert e lee in charlottesville virginia of course because this ended up creating a conflict they have this unite the right rally with a lot of guys of who were part of what was known as the alt right at the time 
there there was kind of this this conflict uh, you know the famous tiki torches um you know someone got run over and and so this you know was killed tragically and so this became a uh, a big part of kind of this idea of, of wokeness versus i guess a reaction to it and this became a big flashpoint now a lot of people myself included made the argument that once you start destroying pieces of history it's not going to stop with the confederates but there seemed like a lot of people who were very sure that that was the only thing that was going to happen what was your response when when this movement kind of started way back and i think it was like around 2017 yeah i for me i was i was still in the army at the time and so um i was watching this from afar i was really shocked by it uh i grew up in a in america where this this i you know this uh, issue of the of the war had really been settled. I mean, this was reconciliation was the theme. Uh, we were encouraged as children to show good citizenship, to consider that reconciliation as far, you know, hard won. Um, and that this was a lesson for us to learn from the heroism of men on both sides to be better Americans. You know, this was the culture I came up in. Um, and I had family, obviously, that are involved with the conflict. And so there's a level of personal history there. Um, so when this came on the scene, I had already kind of been out of the, the zeitgeist being in the military anyway, but I was just really shocked by that. It felt very anti-American to me at the time. Um, but I don't think it was a question for me is once I saw that happening, I knew that it was only a matter of time until this came for statues that were not just regional, but that they would be national figures as well. So the kind of figures that all Americans would at least somewhat cherish hope to cherish um and and sure enough i mean we we saw that after this kind of started uh, we've seen statues of abraham lincoln tore down we've seen statues of uh, thomas jefferson removed we've seen statues of george washington the father of our country uh, being defaced and so as while it was something that did shock me at the time once i saw this moving and the appetite for it among conservatives uh, that's when I just I kind of reconciled myself to the fact that unless we stop this, this will eventually come for everybody. Yeah. And I remember specifically because you know, I also have ancestors that go back to, to the Civil War in the United States. And I remember specifically this was one of the big moments where I was red pilled on media because I was working as a reporter at the time. And I was actually in a press gaggle with the governor of Florida, uh, Rick Scott. He's now the senator, uh, but but he's was the governor of Florida at the time. And, you know, the, the, the Charlottesville had happened and, and the, the media had twisted Trump's, you know, good people on both sides comment that they, they still do that today. And one of the uh, reporters in the crowd, one of the female reporters next to me was trying to manipulate the governor's response in a way that made it sound like he was on the side of, you know, the, the people in Charlottesville who, you know, they were being vilified and he made it very clear that he was not supporting this. That wasn't the case. But she kept just reframing the question, reframing the question over and over again until he finally forgot to repeat one part of the answer he had already given three or four times. And she cut that sound bite completely uh, made it sound like he did. You know, he said something different. The you know, the 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 story that we day was, you know, the governor of Florida supports, you know, evil Nazis, whatever. And all of a sudden, you know, that that was the news headline. Of course, uh, later they had to redact that or they, they had to retract that. But it was too late, of course, once the story's out, that becomes the story. And and she ended up getting, I think, promoted to like Politico. So obviously this kind of thing works. And that was really one of the things that opened my eyes to the way 
that that media can completely shape a narrative uh, you know where they can completely lie they can completely bully you know it's it, the governor of florida can have his entire agenda uh, you know hijacked by some random local reporter if they do their job right and, and kind of how that just shapes everything but but i think there's a couple of important issues to separate here which you know first is going to be kind of the narrative around the civil war that in many ways that this is this has become connected to and then also then the ongoing revolution and iconoclasm that we're seeing inside the united states so the first thing i wanted to get into as you know somebody who's from the south we both are and and you're obviously a military uh, man you're a retired uh, military man when you look at the way that the civil war is now approached by many people like you, like you were saying when i grew up the narrative behind the civil war was you know there there's two sides obviously um you know most people today recognize the evil of slavery that's a huge problem for many people who who want to defend certain parts of the south but it was understood that there was a much wider conflict outside of slavery there are many other issues that were uh, that were tied into this that had been around since basically the beginning of the country and that this was not the only if not maybe even in some ways the primary disagreement inside of the civil war and so that th this was a this was a disagreement between states that wanted to fundamentally div live different ways of life. They wanted different ways to organize the government. They wanted different amounts of centralization, different foreign policies, different different ways that they were going to interact. And you know these were people who were deeply loyal to their states. You know guys like Robert E. Lee were known as deeply loyal to their states. Of course he was he was offered you know, the generalship of the union. And he refused it because of his home state being Virginia once he knew that they were going to join the Confederacy. And so there, there were men who, whether they agreed or not with the particular policy stances of any on any given subject, had a, a home and a loyalty to their state first beyond their country, something that today is harder for people to understand, but was very common back then. This is how we understood Robert E. Lee. This is how we understood the conflict. And it seems like all of that is gone now. And it's just this Manichaean black and white. One side was for slavery. One side wasn't. And that's the end of the show. Absolutely. The, it is a fascinating thing because it just it really shows the way in which Americans conceive of themselves and their country, uh, how that's radically changed from the past. Um, I, I have friends, we discuss the war all the time. I don't do it as much on the timeline because it just invites a lot of uh, radicalized, angry people, and most of which don't have any history in this country, which is very strange to me. But I think it speaks to the insanity of the moment we live in. But, you know, the, the conception of who I am as an American, I mean, this was something that was at even the foundation of the country. We had two radically different civilizations growing out of the one union that was forged at the very beginning of the country's history. Um, and these people, whether they were in the North or the South, they identified very strongly with their place, their sense of who they were as a people with a shared cultural memory. Uh, they had a sense of purpose. They were connected to each other through obvious attachments of loyalties and, and obligations and things like that. Uh, it was a it was a very it was it was a society where the politics as we understand it, politics was a lot more um, on the ground sausage making. Uh, this ideological component was was not something that was widely espoused by regular rank and file people. And if you think about it, I mean, even in the South, there was variance between how people viewed secession. The big question was secession, right? And Robert E. Lee famously 
was opposed to secession. He actually didn't think that there was a right of Virginia to secede. Now, people can use that and say that this makes him morally bankrupt. But what that tells me is that they don't understand the period and the mindset at the time, that even though Lee could consider secession not something that was uh, codified into the law, that there was not any justification for it, uh, Lee also felt that the higher law for him, the higher purpose, was to protect his friends and neighbors at home. And I think uh, going back to that is when you hear people discuss this today, I don't actually think that they're offering any new perspective on the war itself. They're really just speaking to the insanity of this moment that we live in when we have become completely divorced from, we're, we're disembodied uh, from the, the places that we, we live in. I mean, we're the most disconnected we've ever been. It makes, it's really no question in my mind why we would have such a hard time understanding the past of a people so radically different from us. Yeah, that's a lot of really great points. So like the first one you brought up there was ideology and the way that politics has become so ideological. As you as you pointed out, both the Republicans and Democrats, they had progressives, they had conservatives, they had reactionaries, they had moderates. The, the, the politics of the time was far more regional. It was far more interested, like you said, in getting things done, the sausage making, you know, that that was far more the focus on it. It was a it was a focus on the people and the place and not so much the ideas that you're trying to advance. And I think that's one of the many tragedies of people who describe the United States as an idea, right? The, the, this completely ideological nation, because it, it really disembodies people from the, you know, the idea that there is a group, there's a place, there's a people and their lives matter. It's not about whether your life conforms to a certain amount of ideological checklist that makes you an American. It's whether you have a history and a culture that is shared with, with the people in, in, you know, in, in, in a, in a, over a period of time. And the fact that that has that has been so disembodied from people makes it really easy for them to make these these snap judgments, not understanding, like you said, what what could be a higher order, a higher law. Again, it's very hard for extremely ideological and rootless people to place themselves back into a past where people did not, you know, move across the country every five years for a new job or to go to college or you know uh, meet their dates on the internet seven seven states away. They lived in towns and cities. Everything they knew, everything that they were familiar with was grounded deeply in the soil, in the earth, in the area they lived, in the churches they went to, the civic organizations, the people they encountered there. There wasn't this constant shifting. You couldn't just check out of the area you're in and go you know, play video games with friends online or watch TV shows from another country. And so th this is something where, like you said, your place was far more important than whether or not you know, you happen to agree with whatever policies might be lined up under a specific political platform. But that's so incredibly difficult for people to grasp anymore. And that, again, also makes it really easy to villainize somebody like Robert E. Lee, who throughout history, American history, has been relatively venerated even by people who were in the Union, who were sympathetic to that cause, who who were part of, you know, the, the, that victorious side. You know, you look back and I think of movies like Gods and Generals or Gettysburg, where Confederate generals could regularly and soldiers could regularly be portrayed as good, honorable people fighting for a cause that they believed in. And now if you try to do something like that today, it's like you're trying to say there's something good about Satan, right? Like they just they, there's no way that kind of the modern progressive mind could understand that while 
you might disagree. I might have somebody on the other side of a battle. There's a, there's still an honor that exists there. And I think it's that dehumanization that happens when you make all conflicts ideological. Absolutely. This is a big problem too with, I think you can always look at the way our society treats war now. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly insane. It's very difficult for me as somebody from the military to watch us again on the brink of, of more wars. Um, and, and the way in which the public is digesting what is happening. I mean, I've seen people cheering on videos like Americans, uh, supposedly, um, you know, delighting in the fact that there are soldiers abroad on a side that they don't agree with or like that are, are being killed by drones, um, making terrible comments about just very macabre kinds of things that they're saying about people that are giving their lives for for a cause or for an army that they were conscripted into. I, you know, it's this real bloodthirsty um, component to being so detached from, you know, not just the consequences of war, but reality itself, uh, that they delight in the visceral nature of people killing each other. Um, I, war is a really unfortunate thing. I mean, it's something that it's always going to be with us. I don't like it. I don't think it's something that I, I, I don't, I think we all have to have that tragic perspective when we look at war as something inevitable that we have to prepare for, that we have to engage in, but it's not something that we necessarily delight in the, in spilling of, of blood, especially innocent blood. And, but this is, this is, this is a very different culture uh, today than I grew up in where you could take a tragedy. The, the civil war was viewed as a tragedy, Americans killing each other. Uh, the, and the, and the presence of slavery, a tragic thing. It's a, it's something that, uh, as, as Americans that we are continually grappling with. Um, but what was the appropriate response to such a tragic thing that happened where brother was turned against brother, right? Where people were dehumanized. Um, it was this hard won reconciliation. Now, I I don't endorse everything that ever happened in the war. I don't endorse uh, everything happened. You know, reconstruction. That's a whole other thing. We can talk about that another day. But the point is, is what we go home with is the idea that we can become one people again, that we don't kill each other again, that we can try to settle these difficult differences in other ways that don't require us uh, killing one another. I just, why would we undo that? We, we, we scratch that at our own peril. And I just, it's how juvenile our culture is today, how nihilistic it is uh, that we have this us versus them in every conflict. You know, we, we get, we basically, we withdraw from Afghanistan. It collapses before our eyes in 20 years. And then without skipping a beat, we're back beating the drums of war as if nothing ever happened. Uh, as if there's no consequence to this, as if this will never touch us and harm us. Uh, and I just I see all of that wrapped up in this childish iconoclasm with with these statues, because, you know, what do we want to impart to future generations? It, we aren't building statues to people that made the most uh, cogent argument for or against slavery. We build statues to people that demonstrated courage and character on both sides of the equation. Uh, that's what we want our sons and daughters to emulate in the most trying, dif difficult situations, when history comes to a head, uh, when it's impossible to overcome the the fallen nature that we that we all have, um, we want people to demonstrate courage and character. And uh, that's what those statues really are, for the most part, that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, I think it's really important that that healing process that you're talking about, that restoration 
that was essential to America, you know, after, after the Civil War, obviously, Link, with Lincoln's death, the radical Republicans kind of take uh, take the lead and Reconstruction turns into a pretty brutal thing. But it eventually becomes clear, like, if you want the nation to heal, you're going to need to find a way to honor the dead. You're going to need to find a way to reincorporate the South and, and, and you know, the, the people therein into your nation in a way that makes them feel like they're still part of what's going on. They're still valuable that you didn't need to, you know, fight a, a there's a reason we didn't fight like a 50 year guerrilla war afterwards. Uh, you know, and, and that's because there was this effort to reach across the aisle and make Southerners part of the United States again. And a big part of that was honoring the sacrifice of their debt, recognizing that these are people who had a difference with each other, but they were still honorable people. They were still brothers at the end of the day. They were, they were returning to the fold. And that, that attitude of, of honoring the brother returning to the fold rather than continuing that punitive action that was the initial impulse was really key to kind of blending the, the nation together. Because again, like we said, this was a conflict that had been brewing since the very beginning of the United States. That rift between kind of the Jeffersonian idea of the yeoman uh, farmer and kind of the the uh, the more uh, federalist idea of uh, you know the the Bostonian uh, merchant uh, empire those had always been at odds that that had the the rural urban divide in the United States had always been a clash we didn't have royalty or aristocracy in the same way that other nations did but we we had decided to do away with that and but we but those fissures didn't go away we divided them almost in a civilizational way. And so that, that conflict was always there. And when we were able to come back together, we were able to blend those ways of life back together in a way that allowed us to continue forward. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing the, the, the desire to destroy all of that history, destroy all that reconciliation, destroy that ability to meld those civilizations back together and to continue as, as one people, is that the left has once again decided that it's time to get rid of the chuds. It's time to reconstruct the, the South again. It's time to purge out what was left of red America. I think that really is the reason we're seeing that fervor. They've forgotten the lesson of what happens when you treat your fellow countrymen, even those who you might think of as, as those who, who left the union or fought against you. When you treat those who have been reintegrated back into your society in that way, you're going to open up very dangerous things and uh, they've completely forgotten that lesson because they think they don't need to have it anymore. And that really is worth just getting rid of these people once again. Absolutely. There's a, it, it's interesting that we're on the precipice of war. I mean, we don't know, there could be something that kicks off late outside in, in Asia too. I mean, this could really, this could build into something incredibly difficult that any nation uh, facing this would want to be 100% prepared, have the population uh, ready to make a sacrifice, uh, be able to work together, solve problems quickly. And yet here we are at this late stage in this in this potential growing conflict. Uh, and, our, and our economy as well has many problems. Um, I mean, you can go down the list of all the problems that the Americans are facing every day while, while we approach something like a potential global war. And it's it's just it's inter it's fascinating that um, this this didn't just come about last year or the year before um, you know this has been building for a very long time and we supposedly elect people that can guide us through challenging situations we have a 
giant bureaucracy that supposedly has expertise to prevent bad things from happening, to navigate through difficult things and foresee um, problems on the horizon. Uh, all of these problems that we have endured these last three years, an open border with 10 million people crossing it, uh, the collapse of Afghanistan, uh, the war, you know, the invasion of Ukraine, all these things were uh, events that could be foreseen on the horizon by even regular Americans. And and what, <laughs> what do people that have uh, power, what do people that have influence do is they're spending time, like you said, uh, beating up on Red America, finding villains and scapegoats. Uh, it just, it, it tells me that there is no vision at the top. There's really no sense of, there's not a sense of nation. And that's why when people use um, insult, these dead men who've been dead for 160 years, you know, they call them traitors. It, it's kind of laughable because it's just by their actions, these people do not show a sense of national belonging, that they belong to a nation where they would be willing to sacrifice for their countrymen for the simple fact that they are their countrymen uh, with baggage and all. Um, but it just shows how unserious our ruling class is, uh, that they would spend so much of this time uh, in a punitive manner going after Trump and his people while we're just slowly drifting towards a potential global war and an economic depression. Yeah, I'm 100% with you. I've made this case so many times. There's there's nobody at the helm. Everybody wants to believe that there's this cabal of people, this you know that that are steering everything. And don't get me wrong, obviously our elites collude to do many very stupid things, but the idea that there's an overall plan to this, I think it is really just knocked off its pedestal by kind of what you're explaining now. I've got this ongoing bet with my friend, academic agent, uh, on whether the woke will will be put away by a, a more competent set of uh, kind of evil leftist elites, or whether the woke will actually put those you know uh, quieter voices away, the, those more competent voices away, and it will kind of rise to the top. And his bet had always been, especially kind of with what has happened with Israel and everything, he's like, oh no they're going to put this away and it's going to be okay. We got to get those Appalachian boys, you know, back into the saddle. So we'll, we'll use this as the excuse to put the woke away and then we'll get them on board with the new war and, and they'll go back. And, and I think it's slowly dawning on him that no, like there is no plan. Like as terrifying as it is, like these people really are incompetent and they really are going to try to start multi-front wars, you know, like, like multiple possible global wars with, while also deriding and destroying like the very people who are the co the core of their combat arms. I mean, I feel like we talk about this every time you come on, but only because it's incredibly relevant and no one seems to care. Like our government is absolutely destroying their base of combat arms soldiers. They're actually destroying their ability to recruit these people who have fought in the vast majority of frontline units that are the, their most combative fighters. They have destroyed their ability to recruit these people and yet they seem to be driving as hard as possible into wars where they will need as many of these people as they can get but that self-destructive nature just doesn't seem to be able to stop themselves they hate the people who they need to fight the wars but they want to fight the wars simultaneously and the fact that these two things are bouncing off each other just doesn't seem to impact their movements at all yeah it really doesn't and you're right i mean this is the even and this is where you know, they might marginalize the South and they've been doing that for a long time. I and mean, the South has been the scapegoat for uh, the progressive from, you know, day one. But they're they're tearing now they've they're eating into the fabric of American, you know, American post reconciliation symbols and uh, uh, the kind of uh, 
the kind of thing that would resonate with everyone, right? Like George Washington, Northern Southerner, usually has a, an amount of respect. And, and you know, it would not surprise me to see, you know, the George Washingtons and Thomas Jeffersons meet the same fate. And and it just shows that the the movement in this direction, you're exactly right. It's, it's not just going to alienate Southerners. It's going to alienate people that have a sense of connection to this country for the right reasons, right? The things that we talked about, that you belong to this place. You have a history here. You love it because it is part of you. Um, and they're going to have to outsource that to somebody who will will be willing to do whatever it takes, you know, maybe, maybe for the benefits or maybe even somebody who has no history here in the United States. I've heard it been floated of having a bringing immigrants in. And I, I did I, even in the military, I did serve alongside some people that were immigrants and hoping to get citizenship or had gotten citizenship through the process. But I mean, you can't fight wars. I, I mean, it's just history, just timeless lesson. You cannot just win big conflicts like this where the entire societies are mobilized. You can't win that with a mercenary army. You can't win that with bureaucrats. And that seems to be them doubling down. I, I really don't. I've, I I think academic agents incredibly insightful, um, but I have to agree with you. I just do not see this as having a grand plan or even them being able to pull out from this. Um, most of us you know, military, when you recruit, you're, you're looking for military families. That's your, it's really like the most lucrative place to go is go find a family where somebody has history where their dad or, you know, grandfather or whatever served in the military. Um, I, I just, and this is anecdotal, almost every soldier I know from my time in is, is telling their sons and daughters to hold off on joining mm -hmm. the military. I just, and that damage that's been done, I think, um, and this is what they always fail to account for is that every kind of of thing that is done, every action by this regime is going to create a reaction. It doesn't always manifest itself immediately, you know, but the, this erosion of trust, which is very important for a society to function well, uh, they they are not restoring that trust anywhere. Right. And so the more that they do this, the more that like they can't necessarily count on the Appalachian types coming back in. They can't really count on even maybe patriotic Americans in California from wanting to join when joining means you're joining with a regime that tears down the statues of its own founders. You know, it's incoherent and nobody wants to put their lives in the hands of something so incoherent. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. Nobody wants to die for an economic zone, but they seem just, you know, determined to turn America into that. As you pointed out, you know, the mercenaries, it's always a terrible plan. You, Rome beats Carthage every time. And that's really the problem that that you have. Yeah, you can say, well, we're going to promise a bunch of people citizenship and that'll fill the, the ranks. Yes, that's been a longstanding program. Yes, there are there are patriotic people who have done this and have served honorably and become citizens. But you cannot turn the entire force into this. That's that's not going to happen. You know, I, I have not served, but most of my friends, a lot of my friends are, you know, they're either, you know, military servicemen or police or, you know, all of these kind of core rough and ready guys who who make a, a society function. And almost uniformly, they're all saying, I'm out. I mean, I'm done. I'm not I'm not going back. I'm not policing that neighborhood. I'm not going to do that next to our duty. It's just not worth it. You, you know, I'm, I'm going to I'm not going to be a martyr for this because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working for a government that's looking to destroy me and my family. And, um, you know, I, it's, why would I want to join up and put a target on my back 24 seven? Because I know that's all that's going to happen while I'm working as a police officer. I'm working as a, a as a you know military operator. 
And so it's it's just a scenario where they again there just seems to be no understanding of that. But but along with that incompetence, which I think we've we've sufficiently identified, I wanted to talk about the iconoclasm and and its role in a revolution because it seems like we're very key in that. Again, we talked about how this this started with Confederate generals. Yeah, again, even conservative commentators and and you know people like Nikki Haley, you know just talking about oh we get rid of these symbols we you know just put them in a museum we don't they don't we don't want these traitors and you know like all these people who are supposed to be on the right supposed to be conservatives not realizing where this would go not understanding that it would not stop with these people and i this honestly this is a problem and i this is a real issue uh you know i'll you know it's a little inside baseball here i guess guys like you should not have a conservative commentariat that is almost entirely assembled of people from coastal elite cities like sorry like if you you should not have all of the voices from your movement be from the places that hate you because they don't get it like they're not linked to this history they don't understand this in a real way there's a reason you need voices for that are actually representing from the places uh you know that 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 are tied to this history because they can say oh you're conservative you can say you're republican whatever but if you're not actually tied to any of this stuff if none of this means anything to you you don't have family members who've served if you don't have a family stretching back to the civil war you're not going to get any of this this isn't going to make sense to you and so you'll just you'll fold on these issues and so that's really important to have you know that kind of tie but but in in general there was this complete failure of understanding that this iconoclasm was going to occur, right? That this, this was going to be, this was not stop with the statues of people like Robert E. Lee, but it would continue on. And the amazing thing I think about this, this instance was the haunting image of Lee being melted down, right? Like originally people said, oh, well, we'll just put these statues into, uh, you know, into museums somewhere they'll, or they'll go to monuments uh, specifically honoring Confederates somewhere off in the distance. They won't be part of kind of the national conversation, but that was always a lie. And th this was completely destroyed. It was supposed to go to a black history museum to be melted down. And then there was a lawsuit that blocked it. And then the museum just went ahead and did it anyway in secret and, and filmed it so they could try to insult people. But I feel like in a way it, it kind of galvanized people. You saw that history being melted down. You saw that face glowing, you know, the hot metal. And, you know, it was almost like a, the, this ritual sacrifice, but there was still something alive even as they they tried to destroy it. And I think that really kind of speaks to what's happening so much in our country today. No, absolutely. And the imagery was was definitely deliberate, right? Um, yeah. Interesting and secret, as you brought up, you know, that they would have a, they would film this, there would be a, a Washington Post piece to come out. The, the language that they reviewed, that they used in the article really sounds like this is a ceremony, uh, the way that it's described. A lot of a lot of description of, of, you know, what it looked like to have the, the, the wax melt and, and the colors of the flame. And, and that's even mentioned in there by one of the spectators and one of the reason, one of the ringleaders of, of destroying the statue that it felt like a public execution. And, and, you know, this is deliberate. And I think people reacted this way because they, they went with their gut instinct, which is, is the most truthful in a situation like this. And they saw what this meant. You know, this was really the, this revolution we talk about bearing its teeth against against uh, their you know their their enemies uh, who they view as counter revolutionaries um, and it's just it's difficult it was difficult to see you know I've I mentioned before I, I I'm not like a direct descendant of Robert E Lee I'm a I'm a cousin though uh, of him and George Washington and so in within my family within our own small family cultural memory 
uh, we identify a lot with both characters, right? Both figures. I have a lot of respect for both for different reasons. Um, and that felt very personal to me. And I think most people that viewed this felt it very personal as well, which was exactly the message that was want to, that they were wanting to send. And that kind of brings up the, the question itself then, why would they want people to feel this way? Um, and, I, and I think it was just a very honest expression of what this revolution pretends to do. I've been mocked and ridiculed a lot by, <laughs> I used to, I don't, I don't, you, I don't say it this much anymore, but you know, in the past when you would see these mobs attacking professors or you'd have uh, them tearing down statues and monuments, uh, you know, the BLM riots, good example. Um, I would always try to link that this will turn into violence, like real violence. I'm not talking about people getting assaulted alone um, or just a destruction of property. This will turn into uh, full scale violence. We've seen this over and over in the past. You know, people have tried to those who are more ca too cowardly to uh, speak out against this will say things like this reminds them of pulling down Saddam's statue, or this reminds them of pulling down uh, King George's statue at the beginning of the revolution. And, and this really kind of just fails to, to speak to what is the nature of this revolution. The last time we really saw this kind of visceral type imagery are in movements that always resulted in bloodshed throughout the 20th century, in more recent years in the Middle East. This was meant to demoralize. It was telegraphing intentions. And I think that I do think that there's a lot of senseless, imbecilic people on the left who delight in this. They want to bring pain to other to their supposed enemies. But I, I think the impetus of this revolution does have violence in mind. And I think that's why conservatives have really done a great disservice. Uh, the, the conservative movement, I, I blame the conservative movement more than I even blame the revolutionary left for what is happening. Mm -hmm. Because. This really couldn't have happened without the conservative movement continually um, opening up the door to these forces for not being serious about the ideals and principles they supposedly have. Because if you hold principles and ideals where you vow, where you truly do value courage and character, you don't, you wouldn't want to see a statue torn down to somebody who is who demonstrated great courage and character. It's very simple, um, but they. But the conservative movement, in a lot of ways, really kind of started the cancellation uh, that we see in the culture today. And so it was almost a matter of time until the conservative movement would make peace with the cancellation and iconoclasm of the left. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and, and sadly, that is especially at least the, the mainstream conservative movement's most important purpose is to facilitate this kind of ratcheting effect right the, 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 we we think that it's the radical left that's the problem and of course they are a huge problem but it's the rights uh you know the 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 leadership class of the rights willingness to you know give way on critical things anybody who knew what was going on here anybody who observed how these revolutions work understood that it was never about the confederate statues i think it was elon musk commented something like uh you know they they want your destruction or they want they want you dead under uh, kind of this melting down of Robert E. Lee. And that's because Elon Musk knows what's happening here. He can see he li lives in a country where this kind of thing is called for on a regular basis. He knows that's where those, the, the, the roads must fall movement began was in South Africa. He knows where this leads. He knows the consequences. He understands what this means. Uh, but you know, the, the conservative uh, kind of punditry or the conservative uh, political class, their job is to kind of sit there and make sure that the frog doesn't know, notice that the, water's boiling and so hey you know there, there's probably some compromise here there's probably some 
there's probably some legitimacy here and it's really about finding a center. No, the, the, there's no center to these people want to destroy you in your way of life. And we can see this with how petty the revolution gets. It came out today, uh, the Washington Post, that uh, dozens of birds are being renamed by the American Ortho Orthological Society because they're named after racists. And so like we need to go back and we have to like uh, th this is just an incredibly petty thing of renaming individual bird species because there might be somewhere, uh, you know, somebody who had a connection uh, or said something racist in the past. And so they have to be purged from the historical record. And this is really this is what you do to people you want to erase. Uh, and that might start ideologically, but it never ends there. And then I think, like you said, it should, the people should be very aware of where these kind of actions lead, because, uh, you know, no, no one who is erasing your past is expecting you to be around in the next 20 years. Exactly. I, I don't think it's any accident that we're seeing we're seeing threats of violence and uh, violent demonstrations at universities today. Um, and it might be a different target, but the, the reason why that target is now placed there isn't just because of Israel and the war. I mean, let's be honest. We know how this revolution works. We know how revolutionists think. Um, they've eaten their way through the the old enemy and they're moving on to a new one and then they will move on to another after that and this will not stop until it is it is stopped d directly stopped and i think that that's the that's really where we we need to i think we need to think about this and i think i think that one of the reasons why conservatives haven't been able to conserve this is first of all they don't i don't think they've been able to reconcile the fact that the left has very violent pathological tendencies mm -hmm. and that's becoming more clear now thankfully but the other side of it is um why don't we build statues anymore? Why don't we do things um, that would try to instill the same kind of values and beliefs and ethos in our young that prior generations took so much time and care to do? And I think that's kind of the other side of the coin that gets missed is we wonder why we can't save statues. And I, I am one of those people who always wants to preserve what we've been given. Um, but I also understand that it seems purposeless and it seems it seems pointless and we feel exhausted and tired in trying to mount these campaigns to always have to save things and i think that speaks to how aimless we have become um i think i were seeing good things on the right but at the same time there is a real exhaustion and the exhaustion i think comes from the fact that we've been so disconnected from our place our place in the physical world but that comes along with our place in history and when we lose that, it makes it so that we don't create anything new, that the things that those statues are trying to impart to us have been lost to us. So they're just statues now. And while we might have an attachment because it's history, that's how usually people on the right will talk about it, destroying history. But it wasn't really just the history, right? Robert E. Lee was a good man. He was a Christian man. He was somebody who stood up for his friends and he and he 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 became part of a very tragic experience. But instead of allowing a guerrilla campaign or what he promoted peace and mm -hmm. reconciliation, as we all know. Right. But we don't seem to actually value the things that are underlying the statues. And I, I really don't believe we'll be able to save anything until that part of the puzzle is placed back in its where it belongs. I think that's a really good point and something that again I think a lot of conservatives don't want to hear. But yeah, the only way out is through guys. Like we are we have kind of exhausted the uh 
the metaphysical spirit that came just from men like Robert E. It simply isn't there anymore. If it was, then he would have been, then his symbol would have been protected. His statue would have been protected. And the loss of that is tragic, but it also teaches us, I think, something important that that must be renewed, that those that history can only be carried forward in a living manner by by with a vitality and a people who have a vision and, and are building something and doing something important. The United States is now just a place that, you know, uh, you know, reallocates financial assets in between letting in large amounts of immigrant labor to uh, you know, facilitate the you know the the uh, the the kingly living of its elite class while hollowing out every other aspect of the country. That's not something that you can build honor upon. That's not something that people are going to fight and die for. It's not something that you can build statues to. The only statues we build anymore are these absurdly ugly, like the the two arms hugging that look like a like a, a <laughs> uh, yeah crap basically. Like I don't know if you remember that, but like that's all we build anymore. We we don't have that kind of necessary vision as a people, a vitality of people. And I think there are many reasons for that. Number one is we simply don't cohere as a people anymore because we don't, we don't, our, our borders aren't under control. We have a constant influx. We need a, a genesis of a culture once again, and that requires a, a static group of people who can forge a future together. But it also means refining spirituality, a, a core Christian identity. Lots of things are essential to this. But none of that, like you said, none of that history can truly be protected and honored until you have a vital force that's willing to take it and carry it into the next generation. And as a people who are now increasingly looking like they're not even interested in having a next generation, it's hard to, to do anything but have these weak rearguard actions where you watch these kind of uh, this iconoclasm consume what was left. That's exactly right. I think that's the big that's the big lesson for us is we we. We saw the they the revolution board board's teeth again. We saw it. We know exactly what their intentions are. Uh, we don't want this for ourselves, and we don't want this for our posterity. I think if we extend our vision a little bit on not just you know what do we do about the statues now, which I believe we need to protect, but you know absolutely. Um, but what will this country look like in 10, 20, 30, 100 years? Where are all this, our descendants be, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren? That's the perspective of the people that that did those things to be immortalized. That's the perspective of the people who put those statues up for their descendants, to honor their ancestors, to honor the qualities that they, they exhibited in life. Um, I, I think we need to remember who we are as a people. Um, things have changed a lot, so we're not the same people in many ways. I think that's abundantly clear, but we are a people. And I think recovering what that is, is, is paramount. And after that, it is to build something worthy of our descendants to make those sacrifices for them. And I think that that is the kind of lesson. I, I say this because there's a lot of despair and I feel it too, um, especially in places like down here, you know, where where this is uh, this is being constantly turned into a cartoon and destroyed and attacked, um, but in reality, like where what the best thing we could do to honor the people who came before us, the best thing that we could do for our descendants is to try to rise to the occasion, to grapple with these tough issues that we're talking about right now, um, and then move forward. Uh, try to, I mean, really, when the it has become successful, we will have another reconciliation. Um, 
where our goal is not just our goal really it's not the same as the revolutionary left our goal is not to spill their blood in the streets and get rid of them our goal is to build it's to re is to restore order to the society so that this society works in harmony once again and i think that is that is the lesson i want to take away from these statues coming down mm. i want to save what we have but i also want to use this to move somewhere better in the future Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and switch over to the questions of the people. But before we do that, Lafayette, is there anything coming out from you or I am 1776 or anything that the audience should check out before we go to their questions? Yeah, real quick. I am has a new edition coming out about counter revolution. We have some dialogues in there with some people that uh, y'all might know. Um, on my on my end, I'm still in the Apocalypse Now series. I have a piece coming out about the CIA and uh, Mac V. Sog over in Vietnam. It might interest those of you who are interested kind of in the dark arts of the Vietnam War. That's all I got. Excellent. All right, let's go to the questions of the people. Uh, let's see, Tom uh, here for five pounds. Thank you very much, man. Appreciate your support. Uh, Florida Henry here for $10. I have not heard anyone in the real world talk about Civil War or any history in years, maybe a decade. Yeah, I guess it's weird for me because uh, my my like normie job was a history teacher. Uh, so I taught, you know, uh, history uh, talked about it more often than most. But yeah, in, in in casual conversation, if that's not something you're tied to on a regular basis, you're probably right. You could probably go uh, a decade or more without hearing it, which just kind of tells you kind of where we are as a people right now. Uh, George W. Hey Duke for two dollars. Men today can't understand the honorable adversary. Yeah, this is really important. Uh, I was going to say this before okay, Lafayette uh, touched on it, but Carl Schmidt predicted this. He said, you know, your people who invoke humanity are pretty much removing the the idea of the honorable opponent. So today everything is is for democracy or for human rights. And so because you're invoking humanity, well, anyone who's against what you're doing has to be not human, right? They have to be subhuman. You're on the side of humanity. So if they're on the other side, they must be on team not humanity. And therefore, anything is justified, everything goes. And so every conflict is existential. Every conflict is a war of the human, the worthy, the thing that matters against things that are non-human and therefore can be treated in what any way imaginable. And I think this has destroyed the idea that you can ever have a legitimate opposition because everything that opposes you is against human humanity itself. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think honor is one of those things that uh, we need to recapture. Uh, the the visceral nature of war that we spoke about earlier, uh, do we want, like we talk about war crimes all the time and use it flippantly, but you know, if you have a mutual understanding of honor between the com two combatants, who do you think will will protect the other against war crimes? I mean, this these have practical real world situations that we will find ourselves in and, the, and this revolutionary project will enhance will cause more of those kinds of things to happen not less let's see ronald mcnuggets here for twenty dollars it's impossible to distinguish policy and narrative from the global american empire's ruling class from foreign destabilizing operations the more that the gaa declines the more insults and more will be directed at what came before yeah i think it's uh, we we were kind of seeing conquest third role uh, law there, right? That the uh, the operation of a bureaucratic entity uh, looks about the same as a, as if it was being run by a cabal of its enemies. The more the ruling class's interests are completely uh, misaligned with the rest of the nation, the more it looks like they're just actively taking you know the the, the actions that 
a foreign agent would look would do. I don't think that's the case uh, in, in general. I don't think there's some cabal of enemies from foreign nations creating this outcome. I think it's just genuinely a ruling class that has become so insulated from the uh, impact of their decisions and so separated from the concerns of the average person that they now make uh, act decisions that constantly look hostile to the average person. Yeah, and it really it just shows where the biggest problem is is going to be in the heartland against the project that they have globally. Absolutely. Uh, Creeper, we are here for $5. No, young man, you will DEI for the <laughs> the uh, corporal gay flag. You will fight for a, uh, you will uh, fight for a family nation or God, not for Funko Pops. Uh, yeah, again, just that that disconnect, that idea that you should fight for a economic zone is uh, that mercenary can only last so long, right? They might hang around for the benefits, they might win you a few battles, but when it comes, you know, crunch time, when when things really hit the fan, uh, you simply are not going to win uh, incredibly difficult conflicts like the one America seems to be trying to spark. Uh, with a bunch of people who don't have long-term uh, historical ties to the nation. Uh, Tim Miller here for 199. Paper Americans hate con uh, Confederates more than Northeastern ones. Why? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I mean, if you remember the history of the Civil War, literally you had Irish people landing in the United States, getting their citizenship, handed a rifle, and then turned south. So there, there's a long history of kind of, uh, you know, fresh Americans in in the Civil War. Uh, and and uh, being turned against the Confederacy. But yeah, I think you're right that the people who are even the further people are removed from uh, kind of the history of the United States, the more they demonize the Confederacy. The, ironically, the people who are related to those who would have fought the Confederacy are far more understanding and forgiving of that situation, far more respectful than those who have zero historical uh, connection to that. I think Lafayette touched on that as well. Just, the, just It seems like the people who are least connected the newest Americans are most hostile to the idea of the South. Yeah. I've always thought that maybe that might be because there's this, there are two cultures in America. That's your culture of your place, which is truly more American. And then there's the mass culture that you, that might've now is standing in for a civic culture that we used to have. Right. And so I think a lot of people that are fairly new don't have a lot of history here. They, they can only really understand one of those. They latch onto it. And at times, I sometimes wonder if it's to kind of feel more American or prove their Americanness uh, because they just are divorced from that sense of place in history. Mint 20 here for $10. For all Americans of European descent and many other heritages, the important rule to remember is that we are under a hostile occupation. This is just the latest proof. Well, like I said, I don't think that there's an active you know conspiracy or occupation, but I do think it feels that way. But again, because of the incentive structure that our country has adopted, that our ruling elites have adopted, I actually have a piece uh, out today. Should be on the Blaze site. And but guys, by the way, go check out the new Blaze site. They got rid of all of the ads. It's now completely supported by people like you. It's awesome because you don't have we don't have to worry about big tech censoring things anymore. They can't demonetize things because we've <laughs> removed the monetization aspect. That's not something that you have to worry about. And you should go check out uh, the site because it allows them to run pieces like mine. And today I, I should have a piece coming out explaining this separation, this, this kind of principal actor problem uh, that, that uh, you know, incentivizes our ruling elite to have an entirely different direction, to have internal political squabbles be far more important than the well-being of the people. And that really can feel like the occupation that you're talking about there, Mint. Uh, David, uh, sorry, Tavares probably for uh, 10 euros. Thank you. In Latin America, we despise traitors more than the oppressors themselves. 
What I see now uh, that I live in the first world is really a high level of tolerance for traders. I don't understand it. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, actually. Uh, I think there is this, um, I think it's the destruction of kind of honor, really. It's, it's you know, I, what do I care most about? Oh, only people who are keeping me from having more Netflix or, you know, getting more benefits or, you know, collecting more healthcare or whatever. Those are the people that I'm angry at, not people who literally betray me, not actual traders. I think it's it's a it's a, a complete loss of honor culture uh, that kind of comes with the kind of the cushy lifestyle of, of first world living that really brings that that switch from oppressor to to or trader to oppressor when it comes to hostility. And then finally, five dollars super sticker from KG, just a donation. Thank you very much, man. I really appreciate it. Oh wait, there's one more here. I want to make sure I missed a super chat yesterday, and so I want to make sure, guys, make sure you get them in at the beginning it makes it a lot easier so i don't i never want to sign out without being able to get to people who have uh donated so they can say something we really appreciate that uh william packwit for twenty dollars the bigger issue here the issue is bigger than my beef but as a sculptor from virginia the destruction of a monument is uh in uh, charlottesville and richmond was soul crushing yeah absolutely i mean just artistically this was a, a very nice statue again as Lafayette said, we don't make these kinds of things anymore. We make these really ugly pieces of art instead. We make these, uh, you know, the, these terrible statues. We don't make these beautiful works anymore. So yeah, just you know, beyond the the history and everything else wrapped in it, ju just the the ugly brutishness of destroying a beautiful work of art uh, like the one from uh, from Charlottesville is just a, a crime in and of itself. And very good of you to point that out, William. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Want to thank. Uh, Lafayette, once again, uh, for joining me, man, always a pleasure to have you on. Make sure that everyone is checking out I'm 1776 and Lafayette's Substack. Uh, if it's your first time here, guys, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the channel. Uh, if you didn't catch my last stream, that's because YouTube decided to censor it. Uh, it was about John Oliver. It will be, uh, I think, coming back. We are, I'm, I, the blaze is uh, contesting that for me. It's definitely fair use. I'm, I'm confident that we're going to get win that appeal. But in the meantime, the only place you can catch it is Blaze TV, or you can listen to it over at the podcast. I think it did get uh, uploaded to Odyssey as well. So, but but you know that that's why it's good to support places like Blaze TV because then you can catch episodes that you know people like YouTube don't want you to see. Uh, but uh, if you would like to get these episodes as a podcast, of course, remember you have to subscribe to the Orm McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast platform. And if you do that, please leave a rating or review. It really helps with the algorithm. Thanks for coming by, guys, and as always, I will talk to you next time.